I thank you for this body. I thank you for its history. I thank you for its faithfulness. I thank you for its courage and resilience. I thank you that in all things, Jesus is preeminent. And I would pray that the, that would all be true of this moment too. In our prayers, our thoughts, our words, and our meditations. Would they be pleasing to you, sir? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it has been almost 40 years since that film came out called A Christmas Story. Raise your hand if you've ever seen it. Okay, good. So if you haven't, I'm sorry to single you out. But that story, that film, 40 years since that time, for whatever reason, has embedded its way into the way we think and talk. It's, it's a cult classic. Um, there are phrases that have entered into our very lexicon as a consequence of that movie, like, triple dog dare you, or you'll shoot your eye out, or major award, right? All those phrases. How many times have I said, you'll shoot your eye out to my kids that had absolutely no application, but they knew what I meant by it, right? Some dangerous thing that they were about to do. It's worked its way into our world, into our thinking, and maybe some of you watch it as some sort of um, history or tradition that you do every Christmas or Advent season. But I'm here to make this argument that that thing is more than just a cult classic. I would like to argue that a Christmas story does more to prepare you for those who hear it, watch it, for what Christmas's story really is than even it knew. The guy that wrote it, based on a book called uh, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, right? <laughs> that, that story does more to prepare you for what we're trying to understand about Jesus and Christmas than it ever knew. Why do I say that? Take, for instance, one storyline, Flick. There's Flick, right? Flick's at recess on a sub-freezing temperature day around with his buddies. There's the flagpole. It's it's really cold, and in that moment, they dare him to put his tongue against a flagpole to see if it will freeze. And in that moment, what does he say? I don't need your affirmation. I'm going to walk away. No! He doesn't want to be shamed among his peers. He needs their affirmation so much that he is willing to put his tongue against a freezing flagpole. And he does. And what happens? It sticks. And the fire trucks have to come. And all of his buddies run inside. And the teachers say, where's Flick? And they say, Flick? Flick who? And then let's talk about Ralphie's father, right? He gets the major reward in a large box within the box that says fragile. Oh, it must be from Italy, right? And he pulls out the large major reward, and it's a large lamp that looks like it's straight out of Moulin Rouge. It's a cabaret leg. And what does he do? First thought, I know. Let's put it up in the front bay window. And what does his wife do? Oh, oh my, no. And then he walks outside, and he says to his neighbors, and they go, what is that? And he goes, well, it's a major award, of course. Why? Because he wants honor. He wants prestige. He wants to be set apart. And then, of course, what about the main protagonist of the story, Ralphie himself, who from beginning to end of the movie is all about getting one thing, a Red Ryder BB gun, which has a compass in the stock. Oh, what a perk. He writes poetry, he dreams at his desk, he, he puts magazines surreptitiously but strategically next to where his mother reads, 
Everything he can think of. Why? Why does he want that BB gun so badly? Because for him it's power. Recognition. Something. What do those all have in common? I'll tell you what they have in common. A Christmas story is not just funny. It's a parody. It's a parody of the human condition. It's a parody of the human condition in which you and I are all desperate for one thing, whether it's through affirmation or honor or recognition. We're all looking for peace. And all of them are. And we laugh at the ways they try. That, friends, prepares you and I more for Christmas than you might ever know. Because it is that kind of parody of our condition that Jesus enters into that he might rescue that parody before it becomes a tragedy. And I would say that those, the guy that wrote A Christmas Story had no idea how much he was preparing us for the Christmas story. In the same way, Isaiah is going to tell us in the passage we're listening to this morning something that he had no idea would prepare us and Israel for the Christmas story. Because in the passage that he's going to talk to us about, it is how God responds to Israel's condition in which it is sought to find its own peace but cannot. And I would argue that what Isaiah had no idea he was saying at the time is precisely what Jesus has come to tell us in his story about how he brings us peace. Isaiah is going to show for us a pattern that is hinted at and which finally comes to full culmination in who Jesus is about how that peace comes. And it comes in four ways. That peace in God comes through an exposing, through a revealing, through a condescending, and through a healing. It comes from an exposing, a revealing, a condescending, and a healing. Let's find out. We're in Isaiah chapter 57. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you would. Isaiah, starting in 57, starting in verse 12. I'll declare, your righteous, I'll declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they won't profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up. Build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction for my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of of the lips, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters 
toss up mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you've been with us, I know that we've been kind of bebopping around from different parts of where Isaiah was. Last week we were in chapter 11, and before that we've been in 47 and 56 and 58, and now this week we're in 57. And in each moment in the book of Isaiah's 66 chapters, there's a particular historical thing going on right then. And last week in chapter 11, we were at that point in which Israel was facing the onslaught of the Assyrian Empire. Here in chapter 57, which is taking place around the 6th century B.C., now we've got the Babylonian Empire that has carted off Judah, the southern kingdom, into exile. But here, in this moment, we're witnessing what's going on when Judah is either near or in the aftermath of being freed to return to its own land, to be, as they say, repatriated home. They're back in the land, And at this moment, Isaiah is calling out something. That the very patterns that were both individual and cultural within all of Israel that led them into exile, those same patterns are rearing their heads still now, even that they're freed. Even the time in exile was not enough to refine them. Not enough to purge all the inclinations that beset them, that led them to exile, and now that they're here. Look, you and I are familiar with this phenomenon even at an individual and smaller scale. You and I, if you've lived long enough, you get into a rut of things that you know are killing you. And then you hit a brick wall, and your nose, metaphorically speaking, is bloodied, and you are bruised. And in that moment, you say to yourself or to the Lord, I will never do that again. And then the clouds break and the seas calm and you think, I'll be fine. And then what do you do? You do it again. That's where Israel is. They're doing it again, whatever it is. And Isaiah here is first of all out to expose something in them. And what he's out to expose is a habitual return to any and every alternative voice of peace they might find. It's not just like bad habits or um, an unsettled temperament. Isaiah goes so far as to liken it metaphorically to the act of prostitution. Of giving them to anyone who will love them. And it's habitual and it's entrenched and he's out to call it out. And what is he out to call it out? You hear it in verses 12 and 13. And it's not just to berate Israel. It is the first step toward peace. You hear it in verses 12 and 13. Hear it again. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they won't profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. Okay, two things that go really fast. What's he calling out? What's he out to expose? First of all, a self-deception. In Israel's mind, they're thinking to themselves, hey, I'm doing the sacrifices, I'm doing my good deeds of the day. Surely, whatever version of virtue I might be demonstrating, that will cancel out all of these really horrid, corrupt practices that I'm indulging in. And Isaiah's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Virtues can't compensate for vices. It's not a ledger. It's not a a scale. If I just do these nice things, then all of these awful things are somehow forgotten. It's not how it works. Look, you and I do that at the individual level. Look, how many times have I said just something absolutely stupid to my wife? The list is long and distinguished. 
right? And what's my first inclination? I know, I'll go help clean up the house because that'll make up for it, right? (laughs) Let your righteousness and your deeds show forth. They will not profit you. Do we not do that? Israel's deceived, but worse, and here's the word that we don't use very often, but is is as relevant as it could be, we're idolatrous. Israel is getting, forgive me, the crude way, is getting into bed with anybody it will. It will cozy up with anyone that will requite their love, no matter who it is. They will turn anything that is not a God into a God as if it were a God, even though it's not a God. That's idolatry, and that's what Israel's doing. And Isaiah's saying, good luck with that. When it all hits, where will that stuff be? Nowhere. And that, friends, is our problem. You and I take good things, great things, but we turn them into ultimate things. We make them into idols. And therefore, what, is, what Isaiah is exposing to Israel then, boy, he is maybe exposing to me this morning. That's our problem. It's where we go. And you know what? Where do we see that? In any number of ways in Israel's history. But let's just back up to a Christmas story for a minute, okay? Um, Look, uh, you and I uh, can laugh at Flick for putting his tongue against the flagpole. Oh, that's so funny. He needs affirmation. And we can laugh at the father for putting this risque lamp up in his front bay window. And we can laugh at Ralphie for no matter how much he wants. He wants that Red Rider BB gun. We can laugh at all of that. But here's the thing. What is laughable in moments like that The impulses, the little kernel of impulses that's inside of each one of those expressions, finding peace, it's not laughable in other settings. It's actually a danger. Flick, he wants affirmation. Great. You and I want affirmation? It's fine. Affirmation's a good thing. It helps us grow. But when you make affirmation your main thing, you have set yourself up for anything but peace. You will do anything to get it, and you will cultivate a taste for it Such that if you get it, everything is fine. And if you don't, you are sunk. I speak from experience. What's laughable in a Christmas story ends up not being laughable in other settings. Okay, take the daddies, you know, in the leg and the prestige and the honor comes with it. Hey, it's fine. It's good to get that kind of honor, that kind of satisfaction that comes with a job well done or or something that you're a part of or a cause you're a part of. That's great. But if you make honor your main thing, do you realize to what extent you will be tempted to walk over people to get it, to neglect people that have been entrusted to you to get it? It's not funny then. And it's certainly not a path to peace. With affirmation, with honor, what about power? He just wants the BB gun so he can feel powerful. And that's great. Power is a good thing if it's in service to something greater. Power can do amazing good which is in service to something greater than itself. But you and I know from human history and our own hearts, we can be so tempted to just having power that when power is the thing we most want, we can become a danger to ourselves or to others. Then it's not funny. Then it's just dangerous and disastrous. We and they exchange who God is for something that is not a God and treating it as if it were a God. And that has to be exposed in us. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you about this book that came out by a guy named David Zoll. It's called Seculosity. 
it's, it's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Christian in Charlottesville. He wrote that book all about how there are any number of things that we might give ourselves to, good things, parenting, work, civic causes, any of those things that we might give ourselves to that we're always going to be tempted to so devote ourselves to them that we make them into something more than they are. Because we'll think if we just honor them, we'll be okay. Well, there's a guy that wrote a review of that book uh, this week who is not a, a believer, doesn't believe in God or anything, but found something rather poignant in what that book was out to say. And this guy named is Oliver Berkman. And, and he put it in context of his own life as a parent. He said this, I became a parent, what, three years ago now, and I found that it's very easy to think that you're going to somehow one day find the perfect way of parenting and as a result, create the perfect adult and as a result, finally get to consider yourself a worthy and successful parent. But it's totally counterproductive. A massively anxiety-inducing way of thinking. I think it's a really useful argument, no matter your feelings about religion, that you might be trying to seek a kind of salvation from things that can't really provide what you need. Boom. He doesn't even believe in God. He gets it. And that's what Isaiah is out to expose in Israel. And that's what the Lord is out to expose in us. What does Jesus do? He comes and we love him as a baby because he's not talking. (laughs) And then when he starts talking, do you know what he does? What he does mainly? He's either out to convict people who think they're so self-righteous in themselves while being totally blind to their corruption that's motivating it, or he's out to expose the very idols in the heart of those who think that's what makes them okay, when in fact it's the pathway to destruction. Why do I draw a connection between what Isaiah is doing and Jesus is doing? Because that's what he did. That's where he goes. And he's not just trying to put his thumb on you and go, see, I'm in charge. It's not it. The only way to his peace is for him to first to expose to you all your false versions of it. That's the first part. It's not all he does, and thankfully for that, right? The path to peace is not, is not exclusively, it's just initially the work of exposing. Secondly, though, it's the work of revealing. He's not just about exposing to you the folly of what you think will bring you peace. He's actually out to hold something up for you that is worthy of your attention. He's out to reveal something, namely himself. He is out to show us himself, his glory, his reality. And you hear that most succinctly and wondrously put in verses 14 and 15. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction for my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. He's saying, look, Pretend like there's a path to something. Get the stuff out of the way. Make a way. In the, in the submarine, what do they yell when they're in a hurry? Make a hole. Make a hole. Go down the steps. Get out of the way. Move all the obstructions. Move all the people so that we can get somewhere. Where? Where does this road lead? This metaphorical road leads to a vision of who God is. A God who is, first of all, it says, high and lifted up. That's just... That's flowery language for talking about a big word we know as transcendent. Which doesn't, don't, don't miss what transcendent means. It doesn't mean like my God is bigger than your God 
my God is older than your God, uh, my God is uh, beefier than your God. It's not those terms. To say that God is transcendent is to say that he is beyond categorization, is beyond any words that we might apply to him. Everything that we do to understand him is at best a feeble analogy. And so when I look for somebody to explain to me who God is, knowing full well that words fail us, I turn to this guy that you've heard me quote before. His name is David Bentley Hart, and he says, this is who God is. God is not a being. At least not in the way that a tree, a shoemaker, or a god is a being. He is not one more object in the inventory of things that are, or any sort of discrete object at all. Rather, all things that exist receive their being continuously from Him, who is the infinite wellspring of all that is, in whom all things live and move and have their being. Bigger, older, stronger, those are words that grasp at something, but they fail already. He's not a thing. He is that which from all of us exists. And that's nutty to imagine. But he's transcendent. He's beyond it all. And you have to hear that. Not only is he beyond it all, there's this wonderful phrase that Isaiah uses, he inhabits eternity. As compared to us, what are we? We don't inhabit eternity. You and I inhabit time. You had an alarm this morning, maybe. You've looked at your watch how many times today? How many times have you looked at your watch since I started the sermon? <laughs> You're constrained by time. At 1045, you thought, should I go in and hear the prelude? Oh, why not? Everything is round around time. And that's the thing about us. We're, we're constrained by it. We're also frustrated by it. We're also sobered by it. Somebody... Give me a book this week in which the whole book begins with 50 different quotes of wise people through the ages thinking about the way time works. And here's two of them. One is from Dante, the guy that wrote um, The Divine Comedy. He wrote, um, the wisest are the most annoyed at the loss of time. The the colonist, uh, William Penn, time is what we most want, but what we use worst The older you get, the more you nod your head at that. We understand that time is there, but we try to pretend that it's not there. We can think, I'll just binge watch forever, and I'll just have all this time. You won't. We inhabit time, and therefore, to say that God inhabits eternity is to say that he is related to time in a way that we are not, and and that's about as far as we can get in our thinking about it. He is beyond it. He's beyond all things. He lives outside of time. But thirdly, he dwells, it says, in the high and holy place. He he is purity and perfection like nothing else is. Isaiah is ascribing to God what nothing else can call aim of itself. Um, Four years ago, my family and I got to go to the Rocky Mountain National Park, and we got to make the trek to Emerald Lake, and I don't remember how long it takes, but you go by about two or three different vistas that, are just as, that, that you think will be just as beautiful as the next, and then you get there and you stop because the chill of the air is pure and you can see to the bottom of the lake and the colors all around you are vivid and you stare and you wonder, I am not on earth anymore. There's something that we might all apply different words to it, but something that gives you the impression that this feels like sacred. Sacred in the sense that I hope you would shudder to think at the very 
idea of somebody taking a can of motor oil and dumping it in that lake. You would think, no! And you don't know why. Like, there's no sign that says, you know, by, by ordinance number 14.2, don't put oil in the lake. You would instinctually, intuitively say, that would be a defilement. Whatever that feeling is, whatever that intuition is, it's a fraction of what it would mean to feel to be in the presence of a holy God. We are out to consider that. And Isaiah is saying, don't put anything in the way that would obstruct your view of that who God is. Why? I'll answer that question by referring to a Christmas story again. Why does Flick put his tongue against the pole? Why does the father put that silly little lamp in his front bay window? Why does Ralphie pine and pine and pine again for a BB gun? I'll tell you why. Because they have nothing greater in their world to which to aspire. There is no greater glory than those kids' affirmation and his honor and Ralphie's power. Look, if there is no God, then don't judge those, ch- those guys. They're only going for what they think will make them happy and give them peace. And I won't judge you if you go after those silly things too. But if there is a God, and if he is that good and that beautiful and that glorious, then can you imagine all the ways in which you have sought to come up with an alternative to him? For those of you that grew up in the 60s, then you may remember the lead guitarist for The Who named Pete Townsend. In an article with an interview about him in in Rolling Stone a couple weeks ago, he wrote this very candidly. What we were hoping to do in the 60s was to create a system by which we gathered in order to hear music that in some way served the spiritual needs of the audience. It didn't work out that way. We abandoned our parents' church and we haven't replaced it with anything solid and substantial. Here's somebody that can't even hear anymore because of the music he played for two decades. Who gets it? Who realizes that there might be something more than even their music? If there is a God, then can you imagine how silly it sounds to think that you're going to get a sustainable peace from having millions of adoring fans as you play music or having 300,000 followers on Instagram, do you really think that will give you a peace that lasts? He's out to reveal something to us so that we might have our sight set on something larger than affirmation or honor or power. That's what he does. He reveals. But here's where he gets a little funny. Because, look, if at first he's out to expose in us everything that is just absolutely ridiculous, incoherent, and idolatrous, and then he chooses to reveal himself as high and holy and lifted up, and therefore we're beginning to discover that there is a huge gap between who we are and who he is, you might understand why we might think to ourselves, why bother? Great ideal. Wonderful comic books and Avengers films. But this is me. Who cares? He's so far, I'm here, never the twain shall meet. I'll move on. The third thing he does is not expose, not reveal, is that God condescends 
in order to bring us peace. What does he do? That word condescending is a word that you and I, I've talked about this before, you and I use it only in negative terms. People look down at you, think of you lower than them, and, they are, and you say to them, don't be so condescending, right? And, and we, the reason we put it like that with that edge in our lip is because we know that they're not higher than us. They just think they are. That's, then they're being condescending. But the literal meaning of the word is for someone who is higher to stoop down to who is lower. But if it's God, then he really is condescending, and it's not a negative way of putting it. He condescends. He comes to to be present. Though he is high and holy and lifted up, that is never an excuse for him to move and to be present towards someone in particular. And you hear that put there at the end of verse 14. I dwell in the high and holy place, And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Okay, there's that word contrite. You used it twice. What does it mean? It's the Hebrew word daka. You see it sometimes in Psalm 51 when David himself, confessing all of his sins that led to the murder of his associate, adultery with Bathsheba, Uh, collusion with Joab, but he says, before any of those sins, I committed sin against the Lord. And at the end of that psalm, he says, O Lord, a broken and contrite heart, you will not despise. In Isaiah 53, which we preached on a few weeks ago, it's the same word, daka, but there refers to the servant who is crushed. Crushed for others' transgressions. It's the same word, Two different settings. In Psalm 51, it's the contrition of one who is regretting their error. In Isaiah 53, it is the contrition of one who is crushed for the sake of another. In this passage, Isaiah isn't really explicit about whether he's talking about those who are ashamed of what they've done or under the weight of the sin of others. But regardless, he is saying whatever shame or guilt or weariness or burden that you bear, Whatever sense in which you feel as there is a great disparity between who you are and who God is, this God, this God, will come unto those who are contrite and lowly in spirit and be glad to do so. He will bridge the distance. He will not allow the distance to be a pretext or a premise for keeping that distance between them. He will come and be present and revive. He will come to bring those who are low, high again. Can you understand why we might see and hear and sense a real resonance between who Jesus is and what this moment in Isaiah's storyline is? What does Jesus tell in that parable in Luke 18? It's about the the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, so very convinced of his own righteousness and really glad that he's not one of those sinful people. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. And then in watch this tax collector who knows he is weak. He won't even lift his face before the throne of God. Won't even enter into the the temple courts. And all he can say is, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And why does Jesus tell that parable? Who does he champion at the end of the parable? The contrite one. The one who knows that there's a distance. And it's not as if God is saying, nope, there isn't, you didn't, you're right, there is something wrong there. But he doesn't use that as a premise for not bridging the gap. Peter, Luke 5, first time he meets Jesus, he's on a boat. First thing out of his mouth when he realizes that Jesus may be something more than he bargained for, he's to say, oh, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. 
And Jesus doesn't say, nope, you're wrong, you're a great kid. He just says, I'm not going to depart from you. In fact, I'd like you to follow me. He condescends. He condescends like no one has. And he comes to do that in order to bring us peace. Both of those examples, Peter, the tax collector in the parable, they're both mourning. They're both mourning that distance. And you might wonder, why is God such a beat down here? Why, is he, why does he bring people to their knees and into their tears about that distance? It's not to put his thumb on them. It's to awaken them to the distance, but also to awaken them to his goodness. He will condescend in order to bring you peace. And that's what leads us to the fourth and final thing that he does. Where does this peace culminate? He uses the word healing. Because before this peace comes, there is one who is crushed in spirit. And if being crushed before the Lord in this sense means coming to terms with that distance between who we are and who he is, then at least at some point we're going to think that this healing has to do with forgiveness. But you never see the word forgiveness in the passage. You don't ever hear the word forgiven. And that's because this healing is deeper than just clearing a blank slate. It is more than just forgetting the errors of the past. This healing is more nuanced and it's more comprehensive. And you hear it put in the last two verses of the text or the next to last two. I have seen his ways, but I'll heal him. I'll lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This healing is more than just wiping your slate clean. It's about doing something more. This healing, Isaiah says, is to chart a new way for this people. That's what he means by leading. Come, this, follow me. But this healing also means bringing, as he says, comfort to the mourners. When you are low in heart and you realize that distance, but you think that that distance will never be bridged and that God will never have another second for you, he is there to comfort you to say, yes, You are at a distance, but no, you will not be far from me. He is there to comfort. He is there to help us see not just that there's a distance, but that he is the one to come and bring us to himself. And there, friends, is the strangest part of the text. You thought I was going to skip over it because it's the most uncomfortable part, but I can't skip over it. It's what he says in verse 16 and 17. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Isaiah, through the Lord, is pretty much saying this. It is not for no reason that Israel found itself in exile. You gave me the stiff arm, and I struck you. And I was angry at your inclinations towards finding your peace in any and every alternative. But make sure you understand what it means to hear about a holy God who's angry. Do not confuse that anger with the sort of uh, sanctimonious stereotype you'll find in literature of some you know, older, hard-bitten woman who has been offended, and she says, well, I never, right? 
sort of sanctimonious, I can't believe you're like that. That's not that kind of anger. This anger is more like a father who gets on a plane and goes to a red light district to find his daughter who's been caught up in a prostitution ring to rescue her from it. That's anger. And it's redolent with love. Because something has gone after her to take her from him. He has come to rescue her from her own demise. That's the anger. But here's the crazy thing. He's angry at what they've done, and yet he just sort of chooses to heal. What? I thought he was just. I thought he despised sin. So why is he just choosing to heal? How do you reconcile that paradox? Maybe the most poignant and mature moment of a Christmas story is what happens when Ralphie, who has been bullied by these two guys for the entirety of the film, just, they rip him up, down, make fun of his friends, punch him in the arm, and finally, Ralphie in his angst gets so mad, he loses it, and he starts to beat up Scott Farkas. Bloodies him to a pulp until Farkas has got blood and tears and snot running down his face. And the only thing that keeps Ralphie from killing him, maybe, is that mom shows up at the last minute to break them up. Farkas runs home, all crying. Ralphie is thinking to himself, I am dead. He gets home. You know what his mom does? She dries his tears. She cleans him up. Her eyes are very clear. What Ralphie did was explainable, but inexcusable. And yet the way she treats it, she doesn't say it, but it's as if to say, that's done. We'll never speak of this again. Mercy. In that moment, forgiveness, belonging. She chooses And here in Isaiah, bringing together this sense of, you need forgiveness, but you will belong to me. Friends, that's Christmas. Jesus is high and holy. And in him is that holiness that no one on earth has ever seen, but in him also is that condescension. To come and become one of us, to suffer with us, to suffer for us, that we might have his peace. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3, what do we have in Jesus? We have the righteousness of God in which God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. He does not sacrifice his commitment to the satisfaction of a penalty for justice, but he also doesn't sacrifice his desire to bring mercy unto those who do not deserve it. And in Jesus, we have the solution to the paradox. And in Jesus, we have both the choice to punish sin and to extend mercy. And in Jesus, we have the same moment to give eyes that say to us, yes, you need forgiveness. But no, we shall speak of this no further. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. It's the way to peace. Which means we all have to ask ourselves the questions from time to time, and maybe more often than we'd like to. Where are you looking for the affirmation that Flick wanted, and what are you doing to get it? When there is a peace that he promises to us for a kind of affirmation that nothing else can satisfy. 
And what is that honor that you are so desperately seeking and think that you can't live without that you'll do something stupid like that father did? When you have been accorded to yourself an honor in Jesus that nothing else can provide. And where are you looking for that kind of power that Ralphie so desperately wanted in the silly way with a BB gun that nearly shot his eye out? Because you think, if I just have that, everything will be fine. When there is a promise and a story for you that is an offer of peace that means something different and more. Look, I'm the first to say I can lose my peace in a heartbeat. It's why I have to keep coming back to this story. It's why I have to keep crying out to the Father, remind me of that peace again. Because too much, too much competes for what I think will make me feel enough. And that is why I have to run to him and say, I don't have it. Would you bring it again? He doesn't grow weary in hearing that. Clearly. This is the peace he offers. This is the Christmas story. Let's pray. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? Amen.